Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before and he's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Oh, from the penthouse of a partially completed commercial high-rise in glamorous Hollywood adjacent California from the studios of Sirius XM West boasting an obstructed view of one of LA's leading cement factories this is the Tully show I am your host Mike Tully joining me today the host of Mark McGrath's 120 heard weekends on the 90s on 9 here on Sirius XM and the lead singer of Sugar Ray who earlier this summer released the new album Little Yachty featuring the lead single Make It Easy hello and welcome back our dear friend Mark McGrath Michael Tolley nice to see you buddy always a pleasure to be here my friend how are you I'm great. You've been uh, gallivanting. You've been busy. It's been a bit of a gallivanting. And now in you kind of go into the, uh, I guess, fourth, fifth stage of, uh, of the career. Kind of like the final uh, stage of the behind the music before you start going. And then they became friends again and did the reunion tour at 60. We're playing those tertiary markets. Like we just got back from Tillamook, Oregon. Where they make the cheese. Tillamook. Oh, well, it's got that going for it. Well, it was, they, it was a big cheese plate back in the whole thing. It was awesome. Oh, really? They had the cheese Yeah, they, 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 yeah it's, there's a creamery right there, the whole thing. They're it's, very it's proud of it. It's solid cheese. Wonderful people. Great cheese. Yeah. And uh, Umatilla County, Oregon. So we're starting to get out to those, some of those uh, those areas that maybe most people won't go to. Uh, and that's probably there's probably a reason for that. I'm curious about that because I was talking to um, a friend of mine, Matt Depani from the band The Mowgli's, and I think that mm-hmm. they have been hitting the tertiary markets as well. What is the rationale behind that? There's still more people in the big cities, even if yes. you don't play the big hall in the big city. I think if you go to the Mugglies, they're, they're, they're still relevant, new, and releasing records and, and awesome uh, uh, compared to Sugar Ray. I think at a point at our career, we've hit so many of those territories. It's like, well, we haven't played the Umatilla County Fair yet. You know, I mean, oh, I see. it was the Georgia Satellites. The yeah. Georgia Satellites played on Friday night, and we played on Saturday night to me, which is so rad. What do they play when they're not playing Give Me No Lines and Keep Your they Hands They play uh, Battleship Chains. Tied down with Battleship Chains. 50 foot long in a two-ton anchor. Come on. Okay, and the also, they also did a cover of something for a movie. Oh, I'm mad at myself. They covered a Motown song. They kind of did a little bit of noise and was on MTV for like three weeks. Okay. I'm always impressed with bands like them, the, the tail end of the early 80s when you could do something that was simply not pop music, but it was catchy and accessible enough that it could... Because pop is supposed to be, in, in its best form, uh, a grab ball, a potpourri. It's the things that cross over from all the various genres. The catchiest R&B songs, the catchiest country songs. And that was the very, very end of, uh, well, I don't know, maybe nowadays. It wasn't even. That's old, just Old Town Road. I don't it, know. Yeah, well, you know, you're right. It was almost the start. It was the end of something. It was pre, it was pre-Black Crows. No one was going, let's do a Rolling Stones 12-bar blues type thing. And that's what the Georgia Satellites came out of nowhere and did. Yeah. And I remember two videos competing side by side when that video came out. It was uh, Keep Your Hands to Yourself, Georgia Satellite. And a fight for your right to party by the Beastie Boys came out at the same time, I believe. Don't get me, don't get on me, uh, social media warriors. But it was the fall of '86 when both of those came out, competing for space on MTV. So think of what music was doing then. Are we Georgia Satellites? Are we going hair metal, which we were? Are yes. we? Are we? Are we the Beastie Boys? You know, I mean, it, it was an interesting time for music. Yes. Yeah. Well, I want to play your single quickly. Um, I want to give everybody a taste of what you have been up to. That's that's Sugar Ray. Sounds like Sugar Ray to me. Little melody, harmony, little Sugar Ray. Didn't hurt anybody. Ah, a little harmony there. Well, you know, we'll get a little something. We're like, let's copy ourselves. <laughs> What's wrong with that? Nothing wrong with that. I wish I had a sound that I could copy. You know, it, was, it is it is interesting. That's your whole band's search, to get a sound, to get yes. a voice. And I, I think I've told you that before. Uh, when I went to record Fly with uh, David Kahn, um, we were making a, a record floored, and our first record was all over the place. You know, I was singing in falsettos. We were rap rocking before rap rock. Uh, I was doing ACDC stuff. I just didn't know what to do. We were, literally got signed, and we had two original songs. So we were kind of like kids in a candy store trying to figure out what was our sound. David Kahn goes, look, dude, um, 
I got some good news and bad news. The bad news is you can't really sing. The good news is you have a tone. If you stay in that range, I think we can sell some records on this. So I think it's important to find your sound. And what David Kahn did was lead me to water, if you will, Mm -hmm. and said, stay right here. This is where your voice wants to be. And that kind of set the template for what would become the Sugar Ray sound for the the future songs. You know, every morning, someday. How'd you get a deal with two songs? Uh, We lied. Back in the early nineties, because you, you were good looking. Uh, well, there might have been something to oh, do with Jesus that. I had a great, Christ. I had a great run of good looks from like ninety two to ninety nine. I was untouchable, and then uh, two thousand one came, and my boobs started going down on my belly button, and it was <laughs> over. It's over. Uh, but no, you know, there was a time there where you could lie to labels. There wasn't. I know it sounds impossible now, but there wasn't. The, you know, obviously there wasn't the internet. This yeah. was pre-internet. There right. was no social media. Mm-hmm. So you know. I remember we uh, said we were from San Diego because San Diego was kind of happening then. They had Rocket from the Crib, Drive Like Jehu. <laughs> no, but, but I, Car- I love when they were trying to make San Diego the next Seattle, Seattle and they're like, Rocket from the Crib. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a band Such called band. Rust. <laughs> Rust is out of there. All these cool bands. And they're actually really cool bands. And I'm sure they are. And Cargo was the was the sub pop. Cargo Records was yep, the sub right. pop. Yep. And there was a place called the Casbah down there, okay. which was the Crocodile Cafe where everybody played in Seattle. So they were really trying to you know, make the scene we would play bars down there that had nothing to do with that cool scene they wouldn't let us in there with a million you know with the in a million years and we were a cover band so we'd play lots of parties down there so we got known as a party band um and we said we're from san diego blah 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 and you know we've got all these great hit we've got uh, 50 originals and you'll love us and blah 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 we did make a video which showed the visual potential of the band yeah uh which our, our buddy mcgee made which who ended up being a hollywood uh a player, if you will. Yeah, I mean, Charlie's Angels. Charlie's Angels, yeah. Terminator Salvation. He Supernaturally started, the OC, mm-hmm. all these things. Uh, so we, we we did it on 35 millimeter, millimeter film. Uh, so it stood out amongst the uh, you know the cassette tapes that were on the, the desks of A&R guys. Yeah. Uh, but the one A&R guy happened to call this record company, a record store in San Diego, of the one guy who was a Sugar Ray fan. We were called the Shrinky Dinks back then. Who, the one guy who was a Shrinky Dinks fan. And he answered the phone and said, yeah, I love those guys. Those guys are great sign them and so it was just like this serendipitous phone call so the point is back then you could lie and say yes you had these things and again nirvana indirectly kicked their door down doors down for bands like us if you just had a marshall and a les paul and you couldn't play a solo you were getting a record deal well it was a beautiful time to be an aspiring band because the people who had had the taste and the golden ears who could somewhat predictably guess who was going to be successful or at least have a shot at success had no fucking idea what was going to work and they couldn't admit it. Exactly, because it wasn't based in town anymore. You're yeah. like, listen to these guys. They've got three-part harmonies like Queen, and all yeah. of the guys write songs. It was like, these guys can barely play. They're kind of dark and gloomy. Let's sign them. So we got part of that whole proverbial throw something against the wall and see what sticks thing. Yeah. And we obviously sound nothing like Nirvana, never did, but because of them breaking down the doors, if you could play your instruments, it was a bad thing in the early 90s. It was crazy. Yeah. I remember Steve I talking about it. He said, I had to stop soloing. Yeah. Joe Satriani said, we had to stop doing our thing because we were just getting clowned for it. That first Velvet Revolver, maybe there's only one Velvet Revolver album? I don't there's remember. two. There's two? Yep. No guitar solos. Not yep. one. Slash said they told him he, they, they, they not, not anybody tells Slash no. what he can and cannot do, but they convinced him, trust me, dude, it just cannot fly. Can you imagine that? This is Slash. They got Guns N' Roses back together with Scott Weiland singing and there's no guitar solos on the whole. Blind Melon, the first album is all guitar solos, wall to wall. There's not one guitar solo on the second album. Isn't that amazing? And they were a fucking jam band. And you're going to ask Slash, arguably the most tasteful guitar yeah. player of all time, not to do what he does best. Yeah. Hey, speaking of this era, you retweeted a thing that I retweeted that I loved from Spin Doctor's guy. Oh, Chris Barron. Yeah. Oh, well, go ahead. Go ahead and uh, set it up. So what he said was that his a stepmother told him, you know, you're never going to amount to anything. You're going to end up being a janitor. Not that there's anything wrong with that, he added. And so he wrote a song about his stepmother with whom he, he butted heads called Little Miss Can't Be Wrong. And I guess it just passed the three million spin mark. Yeah. That's Lifetime on radio. Right. And then the man made a career out of playing music and is, yeah. a, you know, a, and one of the uh, iconic bands of the 90s, if you will. You know, they, they, they opened a lot of doors for that jam band thing. There was a little scene that I almost kind of want to go back and, and, and look into. I was there, but I was spiritually as far away from it as I could possibly be. But there was a thing <laughs> happening in the early 90s in New York when I was going to school there. Um, Wetlands was the, whole the, Wetlands was the thing. venue. Yep. Spin Doctors, Blues Traveler. And John Popper was, people may or may not remember this, was frequently sitting in with David Letterman's band 
just playing harmonica? Yeah, because he was that good. He was and, so and fucking that, yeah. good that uh-huh. they had this weird, like, aggro dude with, like, bullets on his vest. Right, that was gigantic. Just, yeah. you know, there, <laughs> just, there were... <laughs> and you're like, that weirdo is really good at harmonica, <laughs> but he never connected the dots. And I want to say that there was another band Did or widespread two. panic come out of that scene? Or... I think they're legitimately Southern. I'm sure they... I'm sure they slept on the floor at Wetlands. Right. I mean, for, we for we even played time. Wetlands, believe it or not. Yeah. I mean, did you go there? Remember they had the VW bus that was I in never there? went inside once. Oh, I literally was, never went was inside. That, that was a political stance, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Dude, I'm telling you, I literally, one of my best friends in high school <laughs> was, was, was was trading tapes with people of, of, <laughs> right. of this is the Grateful Dead performance with, uh, you know, Branford Marsalis right, from right. 1983. Right. And I'm literally receiving packages of glam demos from my friend in Japan. I, I love that. It was fucking I, I war. I would have been right there with you. With Mother Love Bone was the only thing we could kind of sort Connect of get together on. on. A little bit. That's a, that's a, good, that's a good connector, though. There's yeah. a good bridge between both. Of but, those uh, two worlds. Yeah, those, those two worlds. I never liked the Grateful Dead. And all these bands were a product, obviously, of the Grateful Dead's influence yeah. in the seventies and the eighties. Right you now, the eighty uh, with the, the Grateful Dead's "Touch of Grey," which became their biggest hit, obviously, mm-hmm. in the eighties. Uh, there, I think that's where all these bands kind of the origin, the 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 rediscovery of a new generation of bands that wanted to be like the Grateful Dead, which led to the Wetlands, the widespread panics of the world, and and really became a giant horde festival <laughs> uh, commodity in the nineties. That's know? right. They, I forgot about the horde festival. Yeah. The difference. Between some of those bands and the other ones is if you're going to be a jam band, there has to be at least one guy in your band that somebody wants to listen to solo for five minutes at a time. I would not pay good money to watch John Popper play 10-minute harmonica solos, but I can certainly understand why somebody might. I'm under the impression, with all due respect to Spin Doctors, who I really don't dislike, that they just aspired to be a jam band and their guitar player is about as good as you or I at no, no really entirely incorrect okay. and I would love to see their, their guitar player is one of the best guitar players ever he's got the oh, okay. raddest tone and the cool thing about the spin doctors is that all the original guys still mm-hmm. they're still which is you know a very difficult thing to do believe me i know this they they were a jam band of its finest ilk okay coming starting their bass player the drummer they're all virtuosos and even chris chris baron that we mentioned the lead singer he can play guitar very well he scats so, well so yeah so they i, I would yeah <laughs> he's awesome he's got the raddest moves on stage he's, he's just he's a really sweet lovely guy so that jam band aesthetic even though they they probably were the most commercially successful that were attached to that scene, maybe? Well, Blues Traveler was, I think, neck and neck, right? They, they, they were, yeah, they were neck and two, neck. Two yeah. big, I think they both had two big hits. They both had, I, I think, they, uh, Spin Doctor, Little Miss Can't Be Wrong. Uh, that's just super, go, just super, go ahead now. Pocket Full of Kryptonite and Two Princes. Two Princes was, I'm sure, by far their biggest hit. By, by far. I would guess that that was their only top ten. Uh, Little Miss Can't Be Wrong was top ten. You think? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, I know. All I right. know. I, I don't think. Uh, <laughs> oh, Jesus. That guy. Check this guy out on that 90s guy. on 9. We'll ride along. Uh, not hurting anybody. Uh, but yeah, no. The, and I think, that, I think that first record sold 3 million uh, copies. And uh-huh. They were both very successful. Let's, Runaround let's was it. a massive success. And massive. I would say Hook, uh, Hook was... Uh, to me, Little Miss can't be wrong. Hook up, yeah, six yeah. one half a dozen of the other. But but to 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 put the uh, the spin doctors in like a band, they they were all rippers and virtuosos, okay. and they are known for that in in the sort of musicians world. And I do think it's cool when a band is just a cool band that people like to go see on their own merits. And then, as we were talking about at the beginning of the show, they are so good at what they do, it crosses over into the pop spectrum. That's a lot Absolutely. more fun to me, and I'll say that about you know Dave Matthews, somebody else I would not really choose to go see, but an amazing band worthy of the 25-minute rendition. Right. And just what they did was just so compelling, so captivating, so tuneful, so good. It just resulted in pop music. Right. And yeah. when you can make non-musicians like someone soloing, you know what I mean? Wow, yeah. that was a great bass solo, and yeah. I've never picked up a bass before. That's really testament to me of someone who's really good at their instrument. Because, mm-hmm. look, you can be getting technical all day. Like, there's drummers that play that, I'm so on time that I'm off time. Can't you see how avant-garde and cool that is? I go, yeah. no, I can't. It sounds like shit. Yeah. You know what I mean? Not it's a like, Rush fan. Yeah, well, but, but you know what I mean? There, you, 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 can, you can tap into that as well. Uh, Rush took me a long time to get into a long time. I tapped out early, early. I fought, I fought and fought. And then Limelight, I just heard it enough, like, nah, 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 nah. it got stuck in my head. And I go, all right, I'm in. So I, I, I got a little pathway in from Limelight. And then I saw the documentary on Rush, which is one of the most comprehensive documentaries I've ever seen because it literally has their first like rehearsal 
taped. Like they were all audio files. Yes. If anybody would have their first rehearsal right. taped. So they have all this incredibly compelling uh, footage of Rush, the beginning, the ending, the middle, all of it. And the drummer is just a very cantankerous, yeah. uh, uh, committed uh, dude. So I kind of was stoked on his like, like he had kind of like a punk rock attitude. Like I'm not doing this, I'm doing this. Yeah, he's a weird dude, and they made it work, and yet absolutely put them in that same category of, I think that they were truly making art that was their art, that was exactly what the three of them wanted to make, and it just so happened to be a thing that people could, um, you know, it had, a, it had a beat, and people could, could dance to it. Yeah, well, hey, well, the thing about Rush and, like, uh, Spin Doctors you were mentioning, they, they did, they got into the pop world because you have to edit songs. You want to get in the radio in the 70s and 80s, you have to have a three-minute song. There's yeah. just no doubt about it. So they had to edit their things, but if you go see Rush live, you know, uh, you know Limelight is 95 minutes long. You, know, <laughs> you go see Spin Doctors live, you know, yeah. Little Miss Can't Be Wrong is 12 minutes long. So right. they, they, they they come from that jam band thing, and they then do. you know. But if you want to play ball on the radio, you got to go three minutes. Unless you're writing November Rain, which was the only song that hit the top ten that was over five minutes in the '90s. It was eight minutes and fifty six seconds. Is that real? Yeah, November Rain, only song, longest charting top ten song ever. I guess that's true. It is true because I, I do the I do the the research yeah, on the '90s. No, only. I know you. I know you got your finger on your chin going. Hmm. Trying I to think. Come, there isn't. See, I have prepared for us to do two different topics, and I keep on waffling back and I'm forth. I'm sorry, between, dude. No, no, I'm no, no, sorry. no, no, That's no, me. no. You don't need to apologize because I'm like, okay, do I go left or do I go right? Because I could tie. <laughs> Sometime in the future, we'll be talking about Bob Marley, who I happen to know from my research did not hit anywhere near the top 10 with that iconic live recording of No Woman, No Cry, which most people is No Woman, No Cry. Studio version is actually very different. Inferior. That song is like seven. Well, that's why it didn't get on. Yeah, yeah. Because even it, though that was like a a hit, like there was no car you could get in no in the '90s where somebody wouldn't you know pass you a bowl and have that song on where you'd be like, "Hey, what is this? What are we listening to right, right now?" It right. was a fucking Without hit a song for my generation. Well, I mean, Three Little Birds, every song, One Love. I mean, yeah. I, did any of them hit the top ten? Totally. Is there a Bob Marley song? Okay, do we need to? No, I, I don't want. I don't want <laughs> whatever segue you're feeling. Feel it because it's in your heart. You know how much you're gonna get out of this. No, it's more about like which songs I have loaded on YouTube. We'll get to that. We'll get to that. Okay. Many people, I feel like we need to talk about this first and foremost because many people want me to talk about this subject with you. Since the last time I saw you, Mark McGrath, as I am certain you know, I believe I saw you retweet. I may have gotten the news from you. There was a settlement in the longstanding dispute between the Rolling Stones and uh, Richard Ashcroft of the Verve fame. And Bittersweet Symphony. Tell me everything you know about this. Well, the Bittersweet Symphony sort of uh, uh, issue is um, they, uh, they being the verb, Richard Ashcroft, Richard Ashcroft, excuse me, sampled a song by the Rolling Stones, which is uh, Escape My Name. What's the symphony? Uh, what they, what, what? So it's a song called The Last Time, but Last it's time. not the studio recording. It's the I'm not symphony familiar. version of The Last Time. Somebody made an album, specifically their manager, Alan Klein, I think was the driving force behind this cash grab. The Rolling Stones songbook. The Andrew Oldham Orchestra performs the hits of the Rolling Stone in orchestral fashion. There you go. So th- I knew there was an orchestra involved somewhere. Yeah. So what happened was is um, the Verve on their song Bittersweet Symphony that we all know and love ripped the beginning of their song that dun, 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 that kind of orchestral part they took the mastered part from the Rolling Stones song the last time and put it into and as Tully is gracefully uh, segueing into right now they took that little part right there and, and, and based the song around the whole thing. Now it's a big part of the song you know, it's the beginning of the song and kind of the basis and would you say chord structure of the song? I would say it plays repeatedly from top <laughs> beginning to end of the entire song. And if you ask somebody to hum or sing Bittersweet Symphony, more than 50% would go ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-ba rather than saying bittersweet. Right, right. But, but Which in and of itself was, I mean, you may as well have been paying Oasis on just your... Right, on, your, on your copings, yeah. on, your, on, your, on, your, on your influences, on as your, we've done on, before. On your phrasing there. We've done an influence theme right. before. But Richard swears and has always swore that he had the song essentially finished. The song was done. Last second, somebody goes, hey, man, why don't we throw this little thing in from Rolling Stones? He's like, ah, who cares? Yeah, fine. As if that was a, an afterthought to the recording of Bittersweet Symphony. Well, if he has that, he's obviously got it recorded. So where's the evidence? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So, like, you already got down that road, and you said, let me just throw this in because it fits in there. Now, the problem is he took the master of it. Yeah. He could have recreated that yes. and had a case. 
You know, and every morning we have a, uh, uh, every morning there's a part in every morning that uh, was influenced by, uh, 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 there's a song called, uh, a band called Malo. And there's the part that goes, ah, 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 that's, that's, that was inspired by a song by Malo. Uh, it's called Suavecito. And even though we did not take the master and we changed the melody a little bit and re-sang it, we still gave them credit and all that because it could have been a legal problem and probably would have. Yeah. But we didn't take their master, even though we paid for it as if it was, just to avoid any confusion. Covered your ass. Cover, covered your ass. Uh, they, he didn't do that. <laughs> they literally ripped the master and put it on there. Now, as Tal and I are kind of talking about, Richard's kind of uh, uh, assuming that it, not assuming or implying that it wasn't a huge part of the song, which we were both disagreeing. It's a gigantic part of the song. And because of his use of the master of that, Alan Klein, who represented the Rolling Stones catalog interest, sued Richard Ashcroft and took 100% of the song away from him. And not only that, credited M. M. Uh, Jagger and K. Rich, Mick Jagger and Keith Richards as the songwriters of the song. So if you look up the Verve song, it might have changed already, but the writers of Bittersweet Symphony say Mick Jagger and Keith Richards. Which is also wrong, because he did add lyrics and, and a melody on top of it. He, it's at not least a number he... one hit by itself. That is absolutely positively true. Not even close. It's just a thing. Yes. A piece of music that you would have forgotten. It wasn't a thing. So there, he obviously had something to do with it being a hit. Yeah. So I think, you know, Richard Ashcroft kind of got pissed off after that whole thing. Rightfully so. Imagine every penny made off that song, which was used in 1,000 commercials, which has been played 1 billion times in the radio. It's probably earned Keith Richards and uh, Mick Jagger and the Rolling Stones' interest. 20 to $30 million, just that song alone. And the worst part about when you uh, get sued and lose on something like that, it's a business interest that you're losing to. So that, whereas an artist might be like, I don't know if I see this song in a Pantene commercial, the person you lost a lawsuit to Sees could give a fuck because it is not their artistic <laughs> creation whatsoever. Whatsoever. So, And it was in a few of those commercials. Yeah. And imagine the ones we saw. I mean, imagine in India. Yeah. It's probably in a gum commercial or something. So uh, I think it's... Very cool that, uh, what, a couple months ago, six months ago? And I think about May, he, according to the statement that he put out, he had always wanted to reach out directly to Mick and Keith, and I don't know why that didn't just yeah, let me ask accidentally you that. happen. Did they never talk about it? I, I mean, you know Richard Ashcroft, I mean, people don't, don't know, he, he's... I mean, he is on par with you know the legends of the pantheon of British rock stars. I mean, yes. maybe over here we think of them as one-hit wonders. That's something that you and I, it makes us ill yeah. that a band of, of that caliber and has such a great catalog is considered a one-hit wonder. But, you know, life is life. Over there, you know, they, their paths must have crossed at some social gathering. Well, particularly- S- Some Mercury Award, something over there. I'll tell you what, uh, Fran Healy from the band Travis sure. was on this show and was talking about how it is such a small world of music royalty. And we were talking about the phenomenal overnight, I mean, really overnight overnight success that his band enjoyed in England around the turn of the millennium. Mm -hmm. He's like, I mean, like within a week, you're in a room with Elton John (laughs) and and, and Paul McCartney and David Bowie. They're like, hey, Fran, how's it going? Isn't that amazing? So for damn sure, Richard Ashcroft, if Fran Healy got in there, Richard Ashcroft got in there as well. And And there's one bar they've all gone to for like 30 years. I can't remember the name. Oh, really? Yeah, there's one bar that's been there forever. And it's just where they all go. And and he said that the legal advice he always got was don't approach Mick and Keith. And I guess he finally did. And they were like, oh, yeah, sure. And I'm not sure exactly how they were able to pull strings on that seeing as how they don't own this recording. They were he was sued by Alan Klein, not by Mick and Keith, but some way or another they have granted him or allowed him to be granted full ownership of the song. He will not make retroactive royalties on which, all the money it has made, which I'm sure would be nice, but he will make 100% of the proceeds from Bittersweet Symphony moving forward and he says more importantly to him will be listed as the sole composer what's the legacy of it all you know yeah. as you get older you kind of take stock of what you have you know money's great money's awesome and he lost a lot big deal it's the fact that forever mm-hmm. it'll say our ashcroft on the writing of that and that yeah. that's his personal property i can't imagine not having that credit for all those years and and richard ashcroft from my understanding and what i've read is kind of a dark guy he goes through like these you know these ebbs and flows of being happy and, and being angry at the industry and then coming back and saying i'm okay now i've done some yoga i've seen the light and i think it's a it's a real classy move to give it back but let's be honest they took every blood out of that stone yeah. you know it's not worth much now i'd be curious to know if it was still gaining the residuals and royalties that it was gaining mm-hmm. if it would have gone back because that would have been a jewel in the rolling stones catalog probably one of the top 20 
earners of the entire Rolling Stones catalog. Out of if you just consider the 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 money that they're making off of royalties for recordings, for not, not, indiv- not not merchandise, just recording only recordings of the individual songs yeah. that the Stones have made. It had to be a top twenty. I mean, the Stones didn't have that many number one songs, right? You know, uh, and that was the number one song around the world, so it was definitely probably in the top ten of earners. So yeah. well, now he can sell it to Pantene. Well, but but you know, it's it's funny that they and and someone who has been involved in writing number one songs. You know, I obviously didn't write it by myself, but it's amazing how. Uh, you know, invaluable these songs are now. It's I mean, I, we get calls from people going, "Hey, we want to use Fly in our in our our pilot for our Amazon web show we're doing, and we got five hundred bucks for it." I'm like, we used to get offered seven figures for it twenty years. It's just amazing the decline of the intellectual property. So. I think it's a very classy move to give it back. I think Keith and Mick could have given it back earlier. I don't care what anybody says. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? They knew. Uh, they, they got all the blood out of the stone. Uh, music's worthless now. And they said, hey, Richard. It, but by the end of the day, though, the most valuable thing was getting that legacy back. And he did. And they did not have to do it. And the story's a little bit more complicated. But who did it? Who the, did it? Did Mick and Keith demand I, it go back? Or did Alan Klein give it back? Yeah, I don't I don't really know. And there was a whole thing where he got the, he got the master cleared, but he didn't get the actual song cleared. And then the... The label already had the records printed, and they're like, don't worry, we'll take care of it. And this and is never all, got taken care of. It. it is all over, but the. And the once it goes out on the and you, you don't have a deal yet, because yeah. this happened to us too, you are, you have zero leverage. Yeah. So, so not could Richard go, look, guys, and it's kind of what Sam Smith did with Tom Petty a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that song of his that sounds I like, won't I won't down, back yeah. down. You know, Sam Smith on his own accord reached out to Tom Petty and goes, you know, I've got a song, it's released, it's out. It's doing well on the charts. It looks like it might be similar to one of your songs. I just want to bring it up and to come to some understanding. Tom Petty, being the, you know, the soul he is, could have taken 100% of that song right then if you wanted to. He said, you know, throw me 15%, we'll be good. They yeah. did. It worked out. Everybody's happy. You know, uh, but, but the Richard Oscroft and those guys took the master and, and released it right away and did not clear it. And this is where the uh, this is where the rub is. This is where the problem lies. And Alan Klein being the, you know, the shark and yes. the incredible businessman he is, sees an opportunity and says, I can be a nice guy, mm-hmm. but I'm not. It's not Alan how I got here. Klein often credited with breaking up the Beatles. Yeah, I know. So the, man, <laughs> the man has destroyed a few careers in his life. <laughs> so you mentioned Tom Petty and Sam Smith, and that in conjunction with uh, the Bittersweet Symphony thing brings me to the topic I want to discuss with you today, Mark McGrath, which yes. is, we've talked about potentially ripped off songs. Does this sound fishy to you? I just wanted to talk about, in celebration of this, the worm turning in the Bittersweet Symphony case songs which which were ripped off songs which have settled and are openly uh lifted right from from one another um we all know about uh tom petty and sam smith we all know that vanilla ice still probably believes that he did not steal a song from queen i'm curious to know how many songwriters are on ice ice baby by vanilla ice Okay. Because Suge Knight apparently has an interest in there. Yeah. Rob Winkle, Rob Van Winkle, yes. Vanilla Ice, has his interest. And I think there was some other guy that his manager's also in. All four guys in Queen will probably be, be credited with that. And then David, David Bowie. David Bowie's got to have some interest in that. I don't know if Mick Ronson was involved, a Tony Visconti. I mean, how many people are listed? How many people wrote Ice Ice Baby? Uh, yeah. <laughs> How many people wrote Ice Ice Baby that don't know they wrote Ice Ice Baby? Well, until they started getting... Ch- oh, well, he su- they sued, right? I think uh, someone got held over a balcony, someone well, sued. That, I mean, was, a different, a, <laughs> that no, was a different thing. That was a just bunch for of people in... got their interest, though. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. that's a... And then there's how many people... You know, there's a writer's interest, and then there's a publishing interest. There's yeah. a lot of layers there. I so know. there might be 14, 15 uh, mouths being fed off Ice Ice Baby. Um, the, the perennial classic. I think many people will be aware that... This song right here was part of a pretty famous copyright infringement lawsuit. I was listening. This one to me is is almost like like the Jer- George Harrison one, My Sweet Lord. Yeah, we'll get to that one, yeah. You know, I, I, all right, Ghostbusters? Yeah. I mean, a, 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 a little bit maybe? I, okay, it's the, I think what, it is. What am I missing? And, and I've, I've studied this, okay? Have you? Yeah, I because I, I have a lot of time. <laughs> when I'm traveling to Umatilla County, I have a lot of time. Um, I see a similarity all day. I see a similarity between, say, what I got and fly. But, but yeah, but, but you know what I'm saying. But, but it, it, a lot of it comes down to bum, we bum, all know bum, that, you bum, can, bum, that you can steal a melody. It's a little bit harder to steal a group, a chord structure. Because, like I mean, like uh, what was it? Um, Uptown Funk. Yeah, I mean, holy Jesus. 
Christ, like Prince wrote that song for the time like five times. That's right, but, but it's a chord it's, structure. It's a it's a it's a chord progression, and or you, you know, you, if you have an iconic drum beat, good luck. Like you know, the one guy who invented the drum beat. That's what is it? Uh, jungle music or something? Right, right, right. It's like literally a fill. What is it the Jesus fill or something? Yeah, 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 yeah. And yeah. it's 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 made. 10 million pieces of it, an entire genre that has spawned subgenres all came off of this one drummer's exactly. one fill on this like one live recording and at one point one of the titans of that subgenre of dance music did like a GoFundMe for the guy and came up with like 200 grand. That's killer. Well, it's better than nothing. Who was the titan? Uh, I'd, have to, I'd have to look oh, that up. Right. That's, that's, that's a deep dive. But yeah, somebody then 200 might be a little high. But did you so, do, uh, do you have it queued up where the similarities are? Uh, uh, yeah, I, well, I'm trying to. I, I mean, this is where it's similar. Okay, so it's, okay. Here's why. Here's why, and I'm sure you. I'm sure you know this. It's the principle. Um, Plus, they're so close to each other too. Ghostbusters and I Want a Drug are were like released within like six months of each other. And what had happened is, so Huey Lewis is riding high. His band has released their second album, Sports, which coincidentally, purely coincidentally, I was listening to on the way to the office today. This is my thing now. I listen to albums that had a bunch top of to hits bottom? in the '80s, top to bottom. It is so goddamn interesting. To That's me. a great thing to do here, and then go down each one. Yeah, yeah. That's a great idea to it's, do. So they were. How does it hold up? Uh, I made it halfway through on the way here today. The first non-single album track was, it's not- a, Brutal. It's not, no, 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 no. That's the weird thing. In my experience, the bands that had one or two hits, mm-hmm. the album tracks are not all that great. The bands that had like six singles, the other four almost could have been singles are too. Because yesterday I did um, No Jacket Required by Phil Collins. Oh, sure. It's a fucking- there's not a bad song no. on there. God, he is so goddamn talented. He and it was it. like he ran to that session from having just done an album with Eric Clapton. And as soon as that was done, he was back doing Invisible Touch with Genesis. Like, and they what did the a, movie, Buster, or whatever. Yeah, you know what, what I mean? a fucking machine. Well, there's a reason why those sell 10 million copies. I guess you, so, you yeah. know what I'm saying? Yeah. Sports sold like 10 million copies. Yeah, you know, seven. The, yeah. yeah, yeah. These are why these bands, uh, that's why, you know, that song is so well crafted. And like yeah. bands that have one or two will sell two or three million, you know, if you had two or three big hits. Yeah. But does the production still hold up? Uh, that's always your 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 concern. Well, that's my '80s concern because a lot of the production in the '80s do, does not hold up, but some do. You know? It's interesting because when I listen to Huey Lewis in the news, I think you don't like you don't really think of "I Want a New Drug" as like a song that at some point it just seems like we found it somewhere someday that <laughs> right. like fully formed. Like at some point, somebody laid down the drums, and somebody's <laughs> like, "Wouldn't it be fun if I did a little sax line over here?" And when you li- that's one of the my, probably my favorite thing about listening to these new album old albums revisiting them is. When you hear it come out of an album track that you've never heard before, yeah. and all of a sudden they do that, yeah. you hear it as it's these supposed guys to be. are in a soundproof room, and the drummer's hitting the hi hat, mm-hmm. and they're just making this thing. So I'm not I'm not necessarily listening for is it good or bad production. I'm just experiencing the production, like hearing it with fresh eyes, fresh I, I, ears I for the first saying. time. And yeah. the sequencing always has an effect on that. Yeah, I just always think Steely Dan was created in the '70s, and you could put that on today, and yeah. it sounds as modern and technical as anything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they were the anomaly. They're different. They're just something else. But, but, but the thing about I Want a New Drug and Ghostbusters, the melodies are different. Can we are. agree on that? Okay. See, it's funny because you and I, I guess we prioritize different things when it comes to um, to plagiarism. The issue with the Ghostbusters song, I don't think there would have been a suit, but for the fact that he would lose in the news, our massive seven million selling album, four or five singles, sports. They approach him and say, will you do a song for this thing, Ghostbusters? And he goes, guys, I'd love to, but I can't. Already doing. Got to get back in time Yeah, yeah. Yep. for, uh, for uh, Back uh, to the uh, Future. Yeah, back to future. And they go, okay, cool. Got it. And then six so, so months. Wait, 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 quick, uh, uh, Ray didn't approach them, but uh, the Ghostbusters approached Huey Lewis. Ghostbusters approached Huey Lewis. He said no. With a piece of material? No, and said, can you do it? I think, can you do a song for this? We really but had he it. heard anything from the song? Did he go, no. Ray, Ray Parker's got this. Can you add to this? No, 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 okay, no. no. So, they just say, can Huey Lewis, can you do a song? And he I says, cannot, no. We're busy. They hire Ray Parker Jr., who then produces a smash single, which sounds like Huey's last single. That's gotcha. the problem. Had they not approached him, they, it, it was basically okay. If you, want I thought to do Ray it, sued him. Okay, what am I missing here? Now I can explain that. Wow, he sued Ray Parker as part of whatever settlement they arrived at. They included a confidentiality agreement. Years later, over ten years later, Huey Lewis is doing a behind the music on VH1 and spilled some of the beans of that 
Ray Parker senses his chance for <laughs> his revenge. His chance of revenge! <laughs> <laughs> Huey Lewis over violating the confidentiality. <laughs> now, are those terms resolved? Now, were they released? <laughs> I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about this. <laughs> that is insane. Yeah. Um, oh, my gosh. But yeah, yeah I, I'm always leery of the... But, that, but that, that riff is straight down Main Street in terms of, of stealing. You know, to me, it's always just like, can you make the song without it? You and I disagree about the lift, which I don't disagree is a lift at the beginning of Last Night by the Strokes, which yeah. is stolen from Tom Petty's American Girl. Of course it is. Nobody could debate that. The critical melody of the song has zero to do with that it. to me is inspired by and not stolen by Especially when you admit it. To me, it's like, could you write the song without it? Let me let me skip ahead here because one of the ones that bothers me, and this is not a, a, a hit song. What happened? So do we resolve the, the, so the Ghostbusters thing is still just not resolved. There's an NDA. No, it's totally. No, I mean, for us, we don't, we don't know. We don't know who did what. We just know that. No, 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 no. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Gotcha. So you are familiar, I'm guessing, with the Flaming Lips, Cat Stevens disagreement? I am indeed. Okay, so this is the kind of thing that bothers me. Yusuf Islam. That's right. Because the Flaming Lips are their two album run, Soft Bulletin and uh, Yoshimi. One of the all time runs. Are just two impeccable albums. And not of this earth, too. Of your your own creation. Yeah. And if I had to pick my favorite song out of that whole run, it would be the first track on the second of those two albums, Mm -hmm. Fight Test, Mm -hmm. which is just a beautiful, perfect song, which has its own verse and its own chorus Mm -hmm. and its own everything and then at one point it does arrive at a bridge yes which is I think it is yeah here we go It's just so true. He just so, shouldn't have gone down there. He should have said hi. You know what I mean? And and also, <laughs> yeah. it's also the use of the words. Yeah, because you, you there's, it, there's some triggers there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the Cat Stevens song, which I'm sure many people are uh, familiar with, um, and would have already noticed the similarity, is called Father and Son. And I don't- Is it Father to a Son or Father and Son? My father and Son is what it's I'm listed it wrong. Uh, as under Yusuf Cat on- uh, the software I'm using here. It's not time to make a change. Just relax. Take it easy. You're still young. That's your fault. There's so much you have to know. Or find a girl. Oh, the golden age of pretentious, oh. smug <laughs> like man I'm, with a I'm guitar. smarter than you. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know. Yeah. Uh, but it's a beautiful song. It is. So Cat uh, Stevens sued and received 75% of the songwriting. And I guess that is the issue of if you discuss it ahead of time, maybe you can You're find yeah. a more amicable settlement once you put it out there. As you said, you have no leverage. But you're, there's also the argument there is just like, you know, look, it's a tribute. It's a small part of the song. Yeah. It's not going to be a giant The song doesn't rest on song. it. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, 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 we're inspired by, to me, it's a tip of the cap. It's like wearing your favorite uh, athlete's jersey. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's like, we're, we're, you know, we're, we're a band that has a lengthy, uh, a, a gigantic catalog of songs. We're very creative. We've done many different styles. We just want to give a shout out to you. We know what we're doing. You know what I mean? I, I don't know. It's almost like they took a, they 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 were hoping to get the other reaction. Oh, that's awesome! You guys did that, right? You know what I mean? They're, and and that, that that. But you know, I mean, and I think they probably thought you know, Yusuf Islam at the time was just riding high and you know just totally centered and ground. You know, I would probably he was out of the music industry was going to have a different reaction to that. I possibly. I wonder that. if the crew. So I'm wearing my Doctor Feelgood T-shirt here. I wonder if they had to. They must have settled up with the Beatles. Uh, Slice of Your Pie, the second song on the Doctor Feelgood album, just becomes she's so heavy by the oh, yeah. at the end well i mean the, what they're just rolling on the stone pimple stone 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 pimple stone temple pilot second record uh purple has got straight ripoffs as gordon lightfoot and the beatles and there was never any you know what i mean it's very similar to what the flaming lips so-called uh us uh rip was so again it's it's Here's the thing, though. You don't ever want to take a chance. No. You know, going down this legal hole is such a drag. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? It's just not fun. You're it's not, not rock and roll, baby. It ain't rock and roll. You don't know how long it's going to last. It's, it's not worth the hassle 
You know what I mean? But yeah. I think it's something like that. You know, Wayne probably thought, look, I mean, it's a shout out. I'm obviously doing this. I'm not hanging my, the, 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 like you said, the crux of the songs, I'm not hanging my hat on the riff. It's a bridge yeah. and an amazing record. Mm-hmm. And to me, I would love to have been included in that. You know what I'm saying? It's, but, but Johnny but. Cash may or may not have been hanging his hat on a sample <laughs> of a song by one Gordon Jenkins. Gordy Jenkins. This is uh, this is some old school like Chattanooga Choo Choo type stuff. I guess if it's before Johnny Cash, what do you expect? But I wasn't aware of this. Hear the train a coming. Come on. It's rolling down the bend. Not even changing the lyrics. Like, not even. And I ain't been kissed, Lord, since I don't know when. The boys in Crescent City. I have never even heard this. Don't yeah. seem to know. Uh, is there legal? Yeah, apparently. Was there? Is it, there? It, yeah, it, it is said that he forked over $100,000, which is why you don't take the money, you take a percentage. Well, what year was that $100,000? I don't that know, like 19, 1912. It was a long, yeah. long time ago. But still, you don't take the money, you take, you take a, a percentage. Because Lord knows what that song has generated over the Well, imagine just having a piece of that during when the movie was made. You, you know what I'm saying? Exactly. You would have made $5 million on that just alone. Yeah. Uh, that's interesting, though. That, that's the time where people thought they can get away with it. Yeah, here's an artist no one knows about. I'm Johnny Cash. I'm Let It Ride. Yeah. Or maybe he didn't think he was going to, you know, maybe he was nobody and 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 it got, blew up bigger than Or maybe it, maybe it was worth ripping off. How maybe, about that? Was that his first hit? I have no idea. I do, another guy who was recently on this show, it really is becoming its own little universe thanks to my narrow interests. Um, <laughs> I think a lot of people have your narrow interests well, according was, to my social media. It was uh, this guy, uh, Harris Cattleman, was um, ran was like an agent in the 50s and stuff and ran TV studios and stuff like that. And I forget one of the anecdotes in his book involved hiring Johnny Cash to sing a theme song for a TV show he did really early on. and literally gave Johnny Cash like $250 to do something. So do we was, not know the TV show? I could find it out. It's in the book. Check it out. It's um, You Can't Fall Off the Floor and Other Tales from a Wild I think I would love that. It's a great Sounds book. It's a, it's a really, How old is this dude? He is uh, 90, I believe. He's, he's, and he's sharp and in here and doing it. I had lunch with him. God he's bless him. Very That's interesting guy. So you have brought up this particular very um, unique and frustrating case of a copyright infringement case before. You've mentioned it more than once. I'd n- never actually heard it, so you can kind of talk us through. I'm sure this will doing something at some point. Oh yeah, this is the uh, the John Fogarty stuff. <laughs> this is unique in its own. Uh, let's hear a little bit of this stuff. Mm-hmm. Saul Zaints was the owner. Saul Zaints of Fantasy Records. Okay, this is obviously Credence Clearwater, yep. nineteen seventy. Now Saul Saul Zaints, I remember uh, John Fogarty ended up writing a song called "Saul Can't Dance." On, uh, on some, anyway, Saul owned the Fantasy Record label. This is the late '60s. He he signed uh, Credence uh, Clearwater, and uh, like many uh, young musicians and artists back then, they didn't really know to get a lawyer. They didn't know what publishing was. They didn't know what songwriting. They didn't know what residual was. They didn't know what anything was. So John Fogarty signed away all of his interests to this man Saul Zantz, who owned Fantasy Records, which was their label. Long story short, we all know the history and what happened to Creedence Clearwater Revival. They became gigantic, one of the biggest bands of their time and their era. John Fogarty was the single sole songwriter of all of the songs. Uh, long story short, he sold away all of his interests unknowingly, unwittingly, to Saul Zanz. So, he never got paid a penny. It's been changed since then, but uh, for the Probably the first 30 years of, of these incredible run of songs he had never got paid a penny. All went to Saul Zance and his record company and his So he interest. got some touring money and that was it. Yeah, he got a little touring money, got a little merch money probably, but but any rec- – I think they even like were ripped off in their uh, – and even the royalties for the records because they had a you know bunch of gold and platinum records. Yeah. So they just it was they were not they were not compensated as an artist. They were not compensated as a songwriter. He, he was – everything was stolen from him. So, I signed a deal like that. Lucky for, luckily for me, we. Didn't go 
So 1980, I'm going to say 586 or something. So John Fogarty goes into this K-hole of depression and bum out. I'm not going to, I hate the music industry. I hate everybody. Long story short, two of his brothers were in a Credence too. Sure. Why not? And I think one or two and sided with the, uh, the, the, the record company owner and not only broke up the band, but broke up the family. Oh my so there's goodness. a double whammy, a triple, there's many layers to this one. So uh, the brothers went with Saul Zance and started, they tried to be Credence without John Fogarty. And, you know, you've never heard a song by Credence Clearwater without John Fogarty singing. Uh, and so uh, John Fogarty met with some girl in the early 80s and, you know, he got into this new age stuff and forgiveness and all that. He goes, okay, I'm done. I want to be an artist again. So he wrote a record in 85, 84. I think it's 85 it came 85, out. 85. Uh, was it called Centerfield? Was that the name of the album? It might have been called Centerfield. I'm not that sure. That was a, you might be might be right. I always mix them up with the outfield. The outfield, the centerfield, play, outfield, play, play deep, play deep, play yeah. deep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so John Fogarty goes. You know what? I'm coming out of my fog. My my Fogarty fog. Uh, no pun intended. Uh, pun intended. Uh, and he signed a new record deal and said, "Great. Okay, I'm ready to play music again. I'm going to write some new stuff. I feel inspired. Let's do it again." Writes this record, Centerfield, maybe. Oh, I'll find out. Anyway, and so it becomes a giant hit. He's got a song called The Old Man Down the Road that sounds like classic Credence Clearwater. The old man's down the road. You know, it sounds like what Tolly uh, was just playing. And he had a song called Center Field. Was, uh, you know, put me in, coach. Put me in, coach. I'm ready to play. Yes, Everybody you're exactly it. right. The album's called Center Field. Third solo album from John Fogarty, 85. Three hits. Uh, rock and Roll Girls, Center Field. Yeah. And, hey, uh, let's go all over the world. Rock. So gigantic yeah. hits. Because the record's a hit. Everything's a hit. Uh, guess who rears his ugly <laughs> head? So, uh, Saul Zance says, you can't do that. I own you as an artist. I own you as a songwriter. I own everything. Sue John Fogarty and took all his stuff again. Well, now, did he get center field or did he just get this song? Because you don't have to like it, but this is a rewrite. I know it's, but how do you rip off yourself? This is what he you does. sold that song to somebody else. Well, I, I, well he, he's not, no, he, he sold himself to someone, not a song. He owned he center field. He owned it all. Yeah. He tried oh. to get it all because that was his artist still. Oh, did he have like a 10-album deal or something? Well, he, you haven't done 10 yet? In perpetuity, you are my songwriter. Oh, my goodness. When you write a song, so it all had to be worked out. I, I'm not sure the mechanics of it. I don't yeah. know if anybody knows. But the point this, is... By this, the way, it's not the same song I was playing before. This is this is the solo one. Right. This is... this is uh, Yeah, this is the old man down the road. So uh, the point is he came back and to see John Fogarty. This was 85, you know, almost 20 years later. And there was a problem. And I don't know how it got resolved. I think Saul got some of the interest of this record or maybe just the old man down the road. But the point is, man, this might be the ultimate example. A man is accused of ripping himself off later in his career. And now there is a law, I think, in California. I don't know if it had something to do with uh, with this Saul guy. If you're a big enough scumbag, they'll, <laughs> they'll name a law after you. Right. <laughs> I know that there was a thing with Bruce Springsteen where he was with a guy, I think it's pronounced Apple, Mike Apple, mm-hmm. who was his manager. And it's a little complicated. I've read the Apple guy's book and the book about him where, boy— he put it all out there for Bruce for years and years and years and had this like religious devotion to mm-hmm. Bruce is going to be the biggest star in the world and nobody can tell me different. And Bruce was nearly dropped from CBS. It was sure. his third album. A couple that, records done, that, yeah. that hit. Yeah. But when it finally hit, I think he owned like 50% of Bruce forever. And he was a small time guy who just got the lottery ticket. Um, but if you sign that, are you a jerk for like keeping your, deal like let's go back to the Saul Zance thing I mean John signed the deal he signed that I mean it was legally enforced to lose all I mean Saul didn't steal look it's a terrible deal and and smart business practice would be let's renegotiate our deal John let's keep this going yeah, exactly. So it's just cherry but guy. When, but when you're when you're uh, Apple, when you're Apple, when you're a nobody and somebody's offering you a chance, the problem is you might you take well make a, a bad deal and say, you know, I'll figure it out later. You Dean, say, Mar- I Dean would... Martin had so- signed away over one hundred percent of himself by the time he got successful. Right. You say, I'd love to have these problems. You know, I'd love to have a number one song and I have to give fifty percent away. Yeah, Trust cross me, that these bridge. Would be great well, problems when to I have. come to it, and, and and so I think that's why they ultimately had to make various laws about it's just illegal for you to offer an artist this. I'd 
contract that 50%, yeah. because they're going to take it and we're just going to have this problem over and over again. There's a ceiling on a percentage you can take I as a so. manager and as an agent. I mean, 10, and then there was that's an, why they call them 10%ers, you know, the agents. Yeah, and then there was another one. I think it was a California thing that I want to say at a certain point, uh, Courtney Love was trying to use to, to change something about her uh, contract situation where I think you can't sign contracts for longer than seven, seven years. years. Yeah, like indentured servitude or something like that. I think Event Sevenfold is currently in a situation like that. Oh, yeah. Where they're trying to get out of their record deal. They've, they've been there for seven years. So I don't know the complexities of this issue. And I'm wondering where the record company's uh, protection is if you can just leave in seven years. You know, you've cultivated the superstar artists and they just can bail, you know? Well, it's very much like sports. It's like you get seven years of them. And well, I guess you're how right. Many, how many artists Not are, many. are that great Not after many. seven years? If you've, if you've given them seven years, don't they have some rights too? That's a good point. It's a you very know? good point. So I have, uh, as always, I have way more things I wanted to talk about. Music business is a cruel mistress. Talk about, but I've wanted to work this one into many conversations we've had. So this is this is my time. Oh shit! I still got credence going too. This is the most hilarious music plagiarism suit. You're gonna go smash mouth on me, aren't you? (laughs) Did they take this too? So this song, the new seekers. I don't. I think more people probably remember this as I'd the like Coke to teach, I'd yeah. like to buy the world a Coke. Than... Mad, the ending of Mad Men. That's right. Remember That's, that? I saw. I saw one episode. I, I literally saw the pilot episode of and Mad the Men, ending? and I saw like the last five minutes. And, and I was you like, saw the whole got thing. it. <laughs> Brilliant! They did it. They fucking wrapped this thing up. Perfect. <laughs> right. And then along uh, comes hilarious. my. I, I, I will always back these guys because sometimes you can be so stupid that you're brilliant. Uh, Only Oasis would steal the Coke song. (laughs) (laughs) This to me is a stretch, too. It's not a direct... Was there ever a legal consequence? Oh, yeah. There was. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, Noel said they drink Pepsi now. (laughs) (laughs) Is someone else credited as a songwriter on this? Uh yeah, uh, that I don't know. That's right. a that's a good question. I, I mean, well, if you're Noel, like you got a lot of songs, do you really be like, no, I must own the. the Sometimes uh, we've talked about there's a subconscious stealing. There's a sub. You know, nobody at any point in the process was like, bruh, it's a coke song. Well, they slowed down, so you know, I like to tease, and uh, he doesn't. But he doesn't go. And puppy, how you like no, to tease? Is that he stole a, a Stevie Wonder song too. It's going to be on their second album, and Stevie Wonder's people are like, "Come on, dude!" Oh, and so yeah, it became, I'd love to hear that. Uh, yeah, yeah, okay. Well, we got to wrap this up. I'll, uh, I'll sorry, play sorry, it for sorry, you. Sorry, sorry. But um, yeah, uh, "Step Out" was. Oh, it was. What's um. What's the Stevie Wonder song called? I don't know. I don't know. We, uh, yeah, yeah, it's one. Yeah, everybody would know if they heard it. Hey, Mark McGrath, we Hi. should do this again real, real soon. Always fun, brother. Always fun. Um, and yeah. thank you all out there for hitting us up on social media. I always appreciate it. It's fun to hear that you guys are listening. And uh, if you want to chat more and follow up, hit me up. Mark, Mark McGrath, McGrath. 120 weekends and 90s on 9. Mark underscore McGrath, as you said. And the new Sugar Ray album, Little Yachty, out now. Real Mark McGrath on Instagram. Yeah, 22,000 followers. Ha <laughs> ha.